welcome to episode four of our Everyday Science of series, The Everyday Science of Bread, where we'll be exploring the science and history behind one of humanity's most fundamental foodstuffs. Joining me are two fellow breadheads, Tom Edwick and Liz Kerrigan. So thanks for joining me, you two. So to start, I thought we could maybe break down exactly what goes into your basic loaf of bread for our listeners who maybe haven't baked one before. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I also really like the term breadhead, and we'll continue to use that from now on. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if you've ever, I guess, looked at a loaf of bread, and you're sort of like, where did that come from? And how did that, you know, become something that is edible? Um, It's actually relatively simple. Um, You basically take four main ingredients, usually water, flour, of which you could pick pretty much any flour, um, yeast and salt. Um, And you basically put that together, um, depending on the type of bread, you put it together in different ratios, Um, you might put it together for a longer period of time or a shorter period of time. Um, It generally involves kneading, which is where you sort of form the gluten structure so it can rise, proving, which is where you basically rest the dough and then let it rise. I'm sure if you've seen pizza dough often, that's a common one people might make from home. Um, you prove it and wait for it to double in size. Um, and then, yeah, you put it in the oven and hopefully you have a delicious loaf. Um, and usually when we talk about yeast, um, you know, most people would sort of go to the supermarket and grab some yeast off the shelf. Um, they have fast acting. Maybe you have seen it in your parents' fridge or I store mine in my freezer because it stays good for longer. Yeah, I've I've never I've never heard of doing that, but I'm going to be doing that from now on. I think basically your store bought like fast action yeast is so hearty that you can't really do much to make it unhappy. And so if you just store it in the freezer, then you don't really have to worry about it dying. I've never had yeast die. I think I've used it for multiple years. Um, yeah, hot tip. Store it in the freezer. That is hot. Yeah, straight away, hot tip. It's a cold tip, really. <laughs> Very cold tip. Very cold tip, yeah. Very cold tip, yeah. And if you're really brave and you don't want to go to the supermarket and buy fast-acting yeast, which, as we said, it's great, um, you know, people make sourdough, and that's where you use a more sort of like natural yeast that you create in essence on the countertop. Um, but it's the same idea, but instead of having this dry yeast that's already been created and dried, you basically can create your own based on just the microbes and bacteria that are in the air. Um, But we'll talk about that later because it's really cool. Yeast yeast itself is absolutely wild. I was, I was did a quick Google for some, some yeasty facts earlier. Um, 1% of all fungi are yeasts. I think that's, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a large proportion of yeast being fungi. I don't know. It's it's yeah. wild to me. <laughs> and there's a lot of fungi, apparently. I also just learned that from you. There you go. <laughs> other types. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's um, yeast are a single-celled fungi. It's over 1,500 different species. Um, but the species that most people will be, uh, you know, will know is the one that you find in the supermarket, um, which is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And that's the one that people use for baking. They use that for brewing, winemaking, um, and lots of like scientific research as well. It's kind of been the workhorse. There is something quite interesting. Just so you mentioned how it's so it's super, it's a, it's a very like hardy 
um, substance. It's everywhere. It makes up a huge proportion of sort of the fungi. Um, and a lot of the reason it's so successful in the wild is its ability to produce alcohol. So when it breathes and it produces alcohol, and obviously alcohol murders other microorganisms and um, kills them, and most other microorganisms can't live off alcohol. And that's what it does. So as soon as you get enough yeast and it's breathing enough, it produces alcohol and essentially wipes out all the other competition which is in, which is surrounding it, which allows it to have sort of be the only life form feeding on whatever food stuff it's feeding off at the time. But there's actually like a lot of science behind all of the basic processes that go into your classic loaf of bread, as you might imagine. Um, and each action does something very specific to get to the final product. Yeah, so as far as I understand it, there's kind of two main proteins in the wheat of whatever flour you're using. Um, glutenin and is it gliadin? Gliadin? I don't know how you pronounce Gli it. I always pronounce it gliadin, but I'm not too <laughs> sure. <laughs> anyway, there's those two pro proteins, and I think they're kind of what people just commonly refer to as gluten in the bread. So that's like um, gluten percentage can be an important thing um, in the type of flour that you use. But basically, when you hydrate the flour, you add your water, those proteins interact and kind of form this big webbed network. Um, and so when you knead the dough, what you're doing is you're untangling all these gluten strands and that kind of allows them to form a really big, stable matrix of, of gluten. Um, and then what happens is the yeast comes along, they feed on kind of the sugars in the flour and they produce carbon dioxide and that gets trapped inside these little pockets in the matrix. Um, and that's, that's basically what's happening when you see your bread rise. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm, I'm sure like there are probably people who are Bake Off fans, but I know one of the things that I learned a long time ago was the, the window pane test. So it's like if your bread has formed those gluten structures during the kneading process, because as Tom just mentioned, in order for it to actually rise, like you need to have those structures into place first for the carbon dioxide to go into the, the matrix. So yeah, you can sort of like hold your bread and try to like pull it apart and the thinner it can get and the more sort of like you can see through the bread without it actually tearing means that you've developed the like springy gluten structure, which is also the same reason why gluten-free baking is particularly difficult because you can't form that sort of like elastic springiness. If you've, if you've ever eaten gluten-free products, that's why they tend to crumble because you basically need that gluten structure to create that like bounciness and yeah, complete structure in bread. The window pane test is always something which is great to fall back on when you're making a loaf of bread and you're just, you're not convinced by the dough, your heart's not in it. And you just need to, you need that reassurance that it's not going to be a total disaster. I don't know about you though. I've definitely like kneaded bread for probably like 10 minutes, did the window pane test and was like, I don't know if it passed, but I'm too tired to need this bread any longer. <laughs> One of the other things that can change the texture is also the amount of water. Um, so, you know, when you're starting off baking, you tend to just follow whatever recipe is given to you. 
Um, but obviously there's lots of different breads out there from ciabatta and focaccia and just sort of a, a general white loaf. And one of the biggest differences in what makes these breads different is just the hydration and the amount of water that's used relative to the amount of flour. Um, and one of the cool things um, when we'll talk about sourdough later and bread sort of in general is that you can sort of play with this hydration rate and really see it yourself. So within a single sort of loaf of bread, you can play between giving it, you know, a 60% hydration rate up to a 90% hydration rate. And you'll actually see the texture of your bread change. It'll get airier. But yeah, it, it's like, it is this interesting other way to sort of play with the, the structure of the bread is just sort of adding or subtracting the amount of water you put in your recipe. How high have you gone? What's the highest hydration? Oh, I, I think I, especially with sourdough, I started too high. <laughs> so I think now I'm, I'm, I'm back down to like 73% or something. Um, I think I tried 80% at one point and basically cried. So. <laughs> <laughs> Other than like doing sort of like a, a ciabatta or like breads that are more meant for it. Like when you're making focaccia, it's sort of designed to be wet and sticky. Yeah. So the way you put it in the pan, like it works for that. Um, but yeah, it, you kind of have to be brave. The more water's there, like it gets really <laughs> yeah. sticky. I once made a... 100% hydration rate for Katsia. Wow. Um, which was sort of the novelty of it. Like the recipe was like, it's like, oh, it's an 100%. So that would be a one-to-one -one ratio of flour to water. Um, and it was sort of, I, I used like a KitchenAid, an automatic, because you wouldn't be able to need something like that because it's essentially just a liquid, like a cake batter. And it's the weirdest dough I've ever experienced because when you're then pouring it out onto the pan, it just comes out and like it rests like a liquid. And it's it's just a very bizarre and it creates a very bizarre sort of um final product as well. It, it's like it's very holy. I'm not <laughs> sure if I'm a massive fan of it, to be perfectly honest. I was gonna say, like, was it worth it? Cause sometimes I know I've made a focaccia that had like a like 12 hour brine wow. or something associated like the entire recipe I think took 30 hours and then I made this like BBC quick focaccia bread and I honestly couldn't tell them apart sometimes with that it is that novelty and the cool factor of going oh I can make this like 100% hydration bread but sometimes it's just like you're only doing it for the novelty I think what's nice about bread is like you can go super complicated if you want to but like if not you can just keep it really simple and like get a pretty tasty loaf out of it yeah it brings me very nicely onto my next point um about how the simplicity of bread uh is sort of why it became so fundamental to a lot of sort of western culture middle eastern culture and it really helped shape the world we live in today so bread was all, like part of the establishment of human civilization it uh scientists and anthropologists think it played a role in helping humanity transition from nomadic communities um very hunter-gatherer moving from place to place wherever the food is to ones which uh would stay in one place human communities which would farm and would need the 
equipment and tools to be able to create bread because it was such a stable food source. And it really sort of shaped the world we live in today. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting because I feel like we take bread very much for granted today. Like I could nip to the supermarket and grab a, a loaf for like 50 pence. You know, it's super easy, really accessible. But that kind of wasn't always the case. It used to be, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that actually kind of goes on behind the scenes to, you know, grow all, all the wheat and the different crops and all the stuff to do with milling and all of this. Um, I, I, I can't really speak for just normal bread, but um, I've done a lot of like research into sourdough and stuff. And there's some crazy, crazy stories of some of the, the work that people have put in just to make some sourdough bread. Um, so I learned about um, these gold rush miners in the Klondike gold rush in the 19th century. And they would literally like take a jar of sourdough starter and they would carry it for like hundreds of miles over brutal mountain passes just so they could make a loaf of sourdough wherever they were. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you, you guys can probably talk a bit more on, on some of the other sort of traditions and special occasions that the bread has been a kind of a focal point in. Yeah, that's super cool. Also just like that envisioning, like somebody carrying sourdough with them. It just feels like such a, like a different world than, yeah, as you said, running to the supermarket and picking up a loaf for 50p. I think we kind of forget about the history and the tradition and, you know, and the difficulty. So the fact that, you know, as we said, we can run to the supermarket and pick up the fast acting yeast that we throw in the freezer from now on. Um, and it's so <laughs> easy. And then, you know, we when we think of sourdough bread and that, it tends to be sort of, you know, your hipster or your artisan bakeries where, yes, it takes a long time and, you know, it's more expensive, but it's kind of this cool process, but it's not really necessary. But really, like in the olden days, a long time ago, it was necessary. And even just sort of coming up with yeast that didn't always exist or people didn't always realize what it did or that it was around or how it worked. So a lot of cultures, especially in the Middle East, unleavened bread and sort of your flat breads are really common because those were sort of your original bread products because it's sort of, you know, without having yeast, if you combine flour and water, you can still produce something bread-like, but it's not going to have that same sort of rise that we associate with bread because you're not adding the yeast to actually create the CO2 and, you know, pop it up basically. So, you know, it did take a while and this idea of risen bread wasn't actually sort of, it existed, but it was only first sort of recorded and spread by ancient Egyptians. And in all likelihood, it was probably sort of accidental. Yeah. If you think about how yeast comes from the air and the water, and pr probably if somebody just sat there and instead of mixing together their bread and water and immediately cooking it on some sort of hot stone, they might have forgotten about it, you know, went off to do something with their friends, came back and suddenly, you know, it was airy they might have started to realize that, oh, hey, there's something in the environment that makes this bread rise. And so this idea of yeast and the growth and time was definitely something that was sort of built into the culture, but mm. in a, obviously a very different way from what we do now. One theory about how it was initially come across the idea of bread rising was beer froth being spilt 
into a dough and um and then obviously the dough just exploding uh from their perspectives only having had unleavened bread before then um and producing a very new and light and airy uh bread and then obviously them seeing noticing that it was the the beer froth which did it and then sort of working out what caused it but yeast as was mentioned earlier is just everywhere like yeast is everywhere and there are so many opportunities for it to sneak its way into um doughs and things like that i like the thought that some some ancient baker was just having a little cheeky beer a bit of drunk baking and it it led to a revolution (laughs) (laughs) a revolution in bread i love that (laughs) maybe we should all do more drunk baking i think (laughs) like the idea that it's Beer was first and then bread. So you know where their priorities lie. (laughs) Once we work out how we can get drunk, then we can focus on a stable food source. (laughs) I I think it's super interesting how kind of entwined bread is with human history. Like for a lot of recorded human history, the bread has been there on the side or even, you know, as a big focus of the traditions. Um, I was researching some stories about like really funky and interesting sourdough starters. Um, and there's this small village in Greece um, and they have a Catholic ceremony. Um, and during this ceremony, they infuse holy water with basil. Like the whole village comes through, everyone has like a little bit of basil and they drop it into the holy water. And then this holy water is then taken um, and they, they use that to make the sourdough. So you have this like really funky, um, bread that's not only infused with the flavors of basil but also the kind of unique and interesting like microorganisms that you have living on the basil there's something very communal about that isn't there as well with sort of the whole community coming together and creating something totally unique uh, and of the moment yeah it's very cool so now that we've mentioned sourdough quite a lot we'll talk about a bit more uh, and i'll let you two do most of the explaining because you two are the big sourdough experts and I have met the times I've made sourdough hasn't gone amazingly. But yeah. It's so, uh, I think you mentioned that it didn't necessarily go all that well for you, Ben. Um, and you know, it's definitely a step up, I think from, from making traditional sort of yeasted breads and there's kind of a bit more groundwork that you have to do beforehand. Um, so the basic premise of sourdough is that instead of using commercial yeast, baker's yeast, um, you're actually using a microbial culture. Um, and that is basically this community of bacteria and yeasts that you've kind of created and fed over the course of like a week. You basically just mix equal parts, flour and water, and let it hang out. Um, make sure you feed it with more flour and water every day. And then after like a week or so, you'll have a kind of funky, bubbly sort of community that's, that is just all these wild yeasts and bacteria. Um, and most of those have actually come from the flour. And there's so much diversity in, in microbial starters, um, which I think Liz is going to be able to talk about. But 
It can be influenced by the type of wheat or the type of plant, uh, the growth year, the soil milling procedures. And so like every, every starter is unique and it's just a really, a really cool process. Yeah. And really in terms of sort of your flower and water and one thing that um, I think is sort of commonly stated, because if you didn't know, San Francisco likes to claim that they're sort of the, the big, the home of sourdough or they have the best sourdough in the world. And I have been to San Francisco and is good, um, but they might be staking their claim a bit too much because in actuality, people also think that sort of your yeast and your flavor profiles come from the air. Um, but really, in all likelihood, it doesn't actually matter whether you make your sourdough in San Francisco or in the East Coast of the US or in Britain or in China. That sort of environmental air effect probably doesn't actually change the flavor of your sourdough as much as San Francisco wants to tell you it does. Um, but things, you know, obviously do make a big difference. Um, and even I think probably one of the reasons San Francisco does say that it does, because obviously it's a very humid place. There's a lot of fog, um, but I might have a different effect in my kitchen from Tom's kitchen, just because of where we are and sort of how moist our house is. Um, and so, you know, things like the flour, whether the water is distilled or from your tap, um, those sorts of things all play a huge role into what sort of culture that you create in your actual starter. And then as Tom said, once you have your starter, the goal is basically just to keep it alive, <laughs> um, which like can be difficult. And I've, I've been fairly lucky. I know um, lots of people who sort of, you know, open up their fridge and suddenly there's a lot of pink mold growing on it. And your starter that you've grown to love for three years has to go into the trash. Um, but in general, it's pretty easy. Um, you just sort of feed it. Often you remove lots of what's in there so that you're not continuously adding and you don't need like a bigger and bigger container to hold it. And that's when we call it the discard. So basically you keep a little bit and then you feed that instead of feeding the whole thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm, you, people may have heard of sort of mother does and their cult or like people out there who have starters that are hundreds of years old. Um, and sort of passed down in generations and generations. And they're probably stinkier and smellier and better than others. Because um, I would say my starter is only about a year old and it has gotten considerably stinkier. <laughs> sure it's been alive. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, you're basically creating your own little microbiome in your kitchen and doing a little science experiment. And it's so fun and cool. I am, um, there is this, um... Just going back when you mentioned about how San Francisco claimed to be the uh, the sort of the big dogs on the sourdough scene, <laughs> um, reminded me that so there is a strain of bacteria which is called Lactobacillus San Franciscanus. Um, mm. So it was named after San Francisco um, because people believed that it was it was just it could only be found in San Francisco. But then further research actually showed it was global. And you could find it anywhere. <laughs> um, but it is still named, I think, after San Francisco. So at least San Francisco has that legacy intact. Yeah, I think they probably make a lot of tourist dollars on, on that fact. 
Yeah. <laughs> Without, I mean, if I was ever found myself in San Francisco, I definitely would would buy some sourdough and try it. Obviously, all of what we're talking about, the intricate science, these these sort of delicate microorganisms you're maintaining, it can sound very intimidating to non-bakers. Um, and I, we really should stress it is, it is really easy and it's much simpler than we're making it potentially sound. Especially just sort of everyone who's ever baked a loaf at one point in their life had never baked a loaf. Like everyone is a first timer at some point. Um, and it is, it, can, it is very easy and it's very rewarding. I've made many, many mistakes <laughs> with making bread. Um, so yeah, I, I would say to the listeners, you know, just it's easy to get a bit intimidated, especially with all the different recipes and things you can find online. That's very, that can be very stressful. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's flour, water, salt, and then either yeast or your starter. Uh, and that's it. Like, you know, if you see anything more complicated than that, just shut out the noise. Just think of those four things. It's super chill. I know some people who get very emotionally attached to their starters and um, sometimes they name their starters um, just to really underline the fact that it is almost like a family pet uh, which just produces a nice loaf of bread every week or so. Yeah I, I named mine uh, Sheila, Sheila the starter, classic, um, <laughs> but I think I, I abused her a little bit too much because I so you can actually uh, freeze your sourdough starter um, if you're going away for like a month or something and then come back, take it out, a couple of feeds and you're good to go. But I think I think I just did that too much because <laughs> I was kind of back and forth a lot. She was in and out of the freezer. It wasn't good. Um, <laughs> she ended up, uh, she, she died and was very unceremoniously poured down the sink. So <laughs> 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 it was, yeah, but that's, that's it, you know, that's sourdough. But the mistakes are opportunities to learn. So there you go. Yeah. So just to, um, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, um, do either of you have any quick practical tips and tricks for any burgeoning bakers out there? Uh, yeah. And I don't know about you guys, like it, depending on the type of bread I'm making, I, I never seem to like flour my surface appropriately or like whatever I'm doing. So one trick if you do not like maybe your bread is at the right hydration level and you shouldn't be adding more flour to it and so you want to flour your surface but you don't want to add that much flour and then suddenly everything's stuck um with like breads especially i think italian breads um, work really well for this is to use olive oil so you can actually create this sort of like more lubricated surface um so then when you are kneading your bread and you're moving it around or shaping it on a table surface ideally it's not just going to stick like crazy which is I think like the biggest fear I have um, with sourdough another thing that um, I find really useful mostly just from watching YouTube videos and seeing what people did um, but I've used flour before and it does work and uh, you, you, at that point I'm so desperate that often I don't mind if I'm adding flour accidentally um, like you know I've foregone my hydration level goals but one thing that I find that works even better than flour, and then you're not impacting the actual flour content of your dough is just water. So if you put like a bowl of water beside you, when you're moving it and shaping it, you just sort of dip your hands in water 
um, and then you can shape it and it doesn't actually add any water to the dough. And I also find like a bench scraper, like invest in one now. But even if you like wet the bench or the, the scraper, like that works so well too. So don't be like, I feel like all, I want to say like, don't be too macho, but like, you know, it, it's not like, obviously even the pros can't just like touch sticky bread with their dry hands. Like it will stick to it. It's going to happen. Um, so yeah, try, try to be prepared and like go in confidently thinking like I can handle this dough and it's probably going to turn out okay. Um, but for me, that's always the most anxiety producing part. Be brave. Yeah. Be brave. I think, um, kind of along a similar line, oftentimes you might be kneading the dough and it's like, it's not coming together. It's just super wet and sticky. You don't really know what's happening. I think you, you have to have the confidence to to trust that, you know, you've just got to keep needing it and it will come together at some point. Um, I've seen online a lot of people worry about over kneading, but you can't do that with your hands. That is impossible. Um, only if you're using a stand mixer. Um, and sometimes the dough just needs a little rest. You know, if it's not coming together, walk away to have a little breather, cup of tea, give it 10 to 15 minutes. And then you come back and you might actually be surprised that, you know, you can shape it into something that looks really good. Do the window pane test. You've got your gluten formation all good to go. So yeah, don't stress, be confident. It'll be, it'll be great. You'll have a, a tasty crusty loaf in no time. Something which um, you said there just reminded me of a uh, experience that I had um, just sort of about trusting it. Uh, so on my first ever sourdough that I'd made, I left it to rise for like, you know, seven hours or an extremely long amount of time and it didn't look like it had risen that much it was looking quite flat and listless and I was very disappointed and I was very very close to throwing it in the bin out of anger um <laughs> but um I was like no uh, I'll just throw it in the oven I'll see what happens and I did and it turned out fine uh, the bread rose really well it tasted very nice and it was it you've just sometimes you've just got to like just chuck it in the oven and see what happens <laughs> I think that's really the moral of the story is like as we said like the worst thing that can happen and the worst thing that might have happened is that it was really flat it probably still would have tasted great so, like yeah never throw your work in the bin <laughs> like just just cook it yeah. you've gotten to the end step it's probably going to be great and then you know two bakes from now you're going to be uh, an absolute pro so it'll happen and if you're an optimist i mean who has the chance to eat unleavened <laughs> bread anymore i mean you can't get that in the shops can you i mean you produce it it's a unique product yeah you're taking a, a trip back through time so um yeah thank you both for joining me and taking a closer look at bread um it's been really great talking about it i don't know about you two but i'm definitely going to be making a fresh loaf of bread after this <laughs> yeah i'm hungry <laughs> i'm hungry now <laughs> maybe i'll try and make a starter <laughs> as i said to to have your own starter you can just basically steal some of anybody else's so if anybody's interested i have some starter and we'll give it to anybody who wants it yeah liz i will i will take some off your hands when i <laughs> yeah definitely will do so um to everyone who's been listening uh Thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to check out our Twitter at uh, SciPodNet and feel free to tell us all about your bread related stories, your failed bakes, your successes. 
and stay tuned for future podcasts. Woo! You've been listening to the Scientific Podcasting Network. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at SciPodNet for more episodes and our latest news. Thanks for listening.